That's great. Did you discover loads? Was your dislike me saying discuss your don'ts and dislikes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Sometimes I am good with the words, sometimes clearly not. Uh, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 14 um, tonight, page 699 in your pew Bibles. And if it is your first time here tonight, maybe it's your first experience of church in general, and this is all new to you, let me just explain. The language here is quite cosmic um, and strange, maybe. There's some images that are used that you might be unfamiliar with, but we'll explore some of these things later, and hopefully this text will come alive to you tonight. That's the aim. We want God to use this particular text to speak to us, that it will be living um, and helping transform our lives. So Isaiah chapter 14, verse 1 to 24, page 699. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And Israel will take possession of the nations and make them male and female servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. On that day, the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, how the oppressor has come to an end, how his fury is ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon gloat over you and say, now that you have been laid low, no one comes to cut us down. The realm of the dead below is all astir. To meet you at your coming, it rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All who were the leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones. All those who were kings over the nations, they will respond. They will say to you, you have become weak as we are, you have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath and worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the mountain of the Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who, who shook the earth and made the kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home. All the kings of the nations lie in a state, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will not join them in the burial, for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. Let the offspring of the wicked never be mentioned again. Prepare a place to slaughter his children for the sins of their ancestors, for they are not to rise to inherit the land and cover the earth with their cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will wipe out Babylon's name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. 
I will turn her into a place for owls and into the swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely, as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. I think the text is pretty self-explanatory. So I'll let you deal with that in your own quiet time. It's been lovely speaking to you. Good night. I can't. I can't even blame Clive for this one because I came up with the whole sermon series. Um, So I picked the text and myself to preach. So I only have myself to blame. But there is some real treasure in this particular text. And hopefully we'll explore some of those things tonight. We're in a series entitled Hope, the Faithful God of Isaiah. And we've been looking through this particular book from this particular prophet called Isaiah, 66 chapters. And we're trying to explore some of the main themes and, and, and topics that come out of this particular book. And we're on the fourth message in the series tonight. Have you been enjoying it so far? No? <laughs> Fair. Fair enough. <laughs> we will take that information and your feedback has been very well received. <laughs> so continuing with the series, we're looking at a title, Some Rise, Some... You should never give the congregation that much chance to respond. <laughs> some Rise, Some Fall, and, and, and chapter 14 of Isaiah. So I'll tell you um, about when I was um, between the ages of 13 and 16. My dad's an army chaplain, for those that don't know, and we were living in Cyprus. And that's where I had the kind of main teenage years of, of my life. And we'd normally start school at 7 o'clock and then finish beautifully at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And what I loved about Cyprus was the chilled out atmosphere. Your family would be home at that time. You could enjoy a barbecue. But what I would do with my friends is we'd pick up our bags and we'd run off to the cliffs. And the cliffs were literally behind our local street. And what I loved about the cliffs in, 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 Andover, uh, in Andover, in Cyprus, <laughs> was that um, they've been literally the kind of names of the cliffs and the places to jump and all that kind of information have been passed down over the years. So brothers would pass it on to their, their younger brothers and dads would pass it on to their children. So you would go to these particularly kind of strange-looking places where you thought there's no way you can jump there. But if you jump at this moment with the wind going this way at exactly that place, you have a chance of surviving. And it would have a particular name. So we had, that's not actually me, just FYI, because you're wondering, far too tanned. Um, but you would, we had one called Cavies, which was one of my favorite jumps. Not particularly big, but it was generally fairly safe, apart from if you jumped a bit too far, you'd be in danger. Um, but there's one called Sazis. And Sazis is a jump I will always remember. It was about 60 foot. And you would stand on the edge of this particular uh, cave again, looking at the water. And it was one of the ones where you'd walk up with all your friends, and they kind of blocked the path downwards. So there was no way you were going to do the walk of shame. So if you stood to do sazes, you were going to do sazes. If it took you 20 minutes to half an hour, you would do it at some point. And believe me, you would do a lot of that and walking back before you had the courage to do it. And it's one of those jumps to explain for those that know how big 60 foot is, you hang in the air. That's all I can explain. I mean, it's a period where you're regretting every single decision you've made up until this point. But one thing really fascinating about cliff jumping is you hit the water and rather than feeling fearful, the adrenaline rush kicks in and suddenly pride settles in and you become, you have this feeling of invincibility. And once you've done Sazes, that big jump, every other jump after that was easy. Suddenly front flips started coming out. Suddenly people were jumping over jumps to get into the water. Can I just qualify as well as a disclaimer? I'm not advocating this, any of this as good practice. I was an idiot. I would admit that. But you gained this sense of pride, and that continued. The more you were doing the jumping, you had this sense of invincibility. Nothing could destroy you. No form of nature could take you on. You were this great cliff jumper, and that's genuinely how you felt. But then nature has a way of reminding you how small you are, doesn't it? 
And I remember on particular occasions, we would thought we had judged the whole situation well. The waves were kicking off, but it wasn't too bad. We'd jump in the water, and then next thing, the undercurrent is far stronger than we had planned for, and the waves suddenly pick up in that moment. And you're swimming for about 15 minutes, and you've not moved anywhere. You're trying to get to the edge. You're literally waiting for that miracle wave to throw you on the rocks. You grab the rocks for a brief second. You're pulled off. You've cut your face. You've cut your legs. It reminds you instantly how fragile you are in those moments. It's a miracle wave that will throw you onto the side to suddenly remind you that there is a God to a certain extent. Matthew chapter 8. I was reflecting on this story this week. And the words of Matthew chapter 8 really struck me. I will link all this together. I know it's a bit of a random story to start with. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. A windstorm arose on the sea, so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? You have little faith. And he got up. He rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Pride convinced us somehow that we were invincible, that we could hold the world, that we could do whatever we wanted. Nature couldn't even get involved. The greatest power there is in this world, nature, right, couldn't even stop us. And yet only took a few little waves to completely humble us. And yet the God of our universe has control and mastery over nature. How insane is that? Our God is greater. If you forget everything I say tonight, remember that. Our God is greater than all human pride and sense of us lifting ourselves up as to be great deities, the great leaders we see across this world who hold so much power, and yet our God is greater than all of nature, all of its powers. It was God who designed it, created it, nurtured it. Our God is greater. And the reason I say this at the start, the reason I tell you that seemingly random story is because it seems to speak something of the heart of this text of Isaiah 14. And I'm a little bit excited about this message, not because it's together or worked out. In fact, it's probably the least together and worked out. I've had a sermon in quite a while because God as God does, I had worked out exactly what I wanted to say and I knew exactly the message that I was going to bring to you. And he taps me on the shoulder and says, do you want to listen to me at all during this process of discernment, mate? And changed it completely. So I'm excited because in those moments, although I come less prepared, I come hopefully with something that I believe God wants to say to us tonight. Our God is greater. If you open your Bibles with me, um, Isaiah chapter 14, we're going to kind of work through it and explore a bit of some of that strange language together. Also, can I just thank Dan? Dan, where are you? Put your hand up for a minute. Can I thank Dan for this bottle? Because he saw that I come up here every single week with different plastic bottles, which is obviously not good for the environment, and I keep losing them. And he's gone out of his way to buy me a really nice bottle. So thank you, my friend, for, for the bottle. Feel free to buy his stuff as ministers as well. That's allowed. So this, this first part of the text, it, it sets this kind of hope for the Israelite people. They've been hopeless before, but suddenly there's this hope. For the first, the first three verses, go with me. It says, But the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land, and aliens will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And later it goes on to say, They will take captive those who were their captives and rule over those who were oppressed. 
let me give you a context. Now, I know many of you know about the Israelites and the Babylonians. You've done it in, in maybe Sunday school. You've, you've heard about it in many contexts. But um, there might be many people here who don't. So let me explain these two characters in the particular story that we're looking at. Israel is the, is the, is the Jewish people, right? The Israelite nation. The, the story of the Old Testament is the story of the Israelites and how God has, has nurtured them from a nomadic people who moved around from place to place in tents to become an established nation. And even having all the great power and wealth they did and, and the great um, authority, if you like, suddenly this, this Babylonian superpower came along. And this superpower uh, captured, cap, uh, captured, thank you very much, captured the Israelite uh, nation and then exiled a bunch of the, of the Israelites to different parts across the Middle East. And they left a remnant there and then moved in various foreigners. So what originally was their nation, they had their national identity, they had an economic system, a religious system, suddenly all of that fell apart. And their whole world as they known it had been completely turned upside down. Nothing made sense anymore. Their national identity, who they were as people, who their God was, they were in this completely upside down, hopeless situation. And yet in this passage, Isaiah is saying, as God has told him to say, but there is hope. I am going to turn things round. You are the oppressed, but you will not always be the oppressed. And the text goes on to almost like God is calling the Israelite people. There will be a time when you'll taunt your captors, almost taunting them. And, and, and some scholars don't like the language of taunt. It's a bit too strong. Barry Webb, he, he says this, this is no cheap gloating over the downfall of an enemy, but the satisfaction and delight which God's people rightly feel at his final victory over evil. The situation may seem hopeless, but there will be a time where our God who is greater will intervene and will turn things around. This is the hope that is coming out of the text. This is the taunt that they're given to almost sing God's praises. My God has left me in this hopeless situation, but he rescued me. And the Israelite people will one day be able to call this out. So there are two things in particular this, um, that God says that the Israelite people, it's confusing, that God says the Israelite people will taunt the Babylonians in the future. The first is, is their inevitable fall from power, and their second is their fall of pride. So let's look first at this idea of, of power, verses 3 to 11 in our text. I don't normally work through verse by verse, but actually it's quite helpful, I think, sometimes to just explore the text and see what it has to say. So 3 to um, 11, when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, this cry in the future, how the oppressor has ceased, how his insolence has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers that struck down the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They will break forth into singing. The cypresses exult over you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no one comes to cut us down. And the text goes on. This, this shout of joy that the Babylonians have had so much power who oppressed this particular people group, their power will come to an end. And ultimately, people will be singing. There will be joy. And I've been reflecting on this particular word. I don't know about you, but power. Arguably, what, the greatest drug in our society? A desire for power? Affecting the greatest of leaders who, who have control over who lives and who dies in, in wars. But then also in churches, sometimes that can be the most destructive thing in people's lives. A desire for power. 
power in the wrong hands that somehow um, people realize they can manipulate, they can oppress, they can um, capture people. Power can be so dangerous, can't it? And there's something about the power of the Babylonian people here that it will be brought low because in comparison to the beauty of God and his greatness, it is dim and stands no chance. Then verses 12 um, to 15, it's kind of split up into these two bits, power and then pride. That's the best picture I could find of someone looking quite proudful. Proudful? Is that even a word? Maybe. It is tonight. So verses 12 to 15. I'm going to kind of pick and choose bits, so you can follow systematically if you want to. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? You ever heard the phrase, um, pride comes before a fall, right? I think this sums up this text absolutely perfectly. Yeah, you have risen to power. I, I get that, King Babylon, and all you've done. Good job, mate. But it will come to an end. You may rise for a period of time. You may think yourself so great. You may even think of yourself as a deity, but there will be a period in which everything will be lowered and my people will be restored to their place. There's a few verses in this text I found quite fascinating, right? Because the language of the Sebra of Isaiah is quite strange. He uses images and language that people would have understood in his day. So verse um, 12 of our particular text, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, sun of dawn. So in the kind of time, Venus would have, the planet of Venus would have shone quite brightly just before the dawn. So they called it, it was called the kind of day star, sun of, what's it called? Verse 12, son of dawn was the name for for, for Venus because it shone so brightly just before dawn. But every single morning, the sun would eclipse this particular planet. And in kind of Canaanite mythology, the local kind of pagan nations, if you like, as they were referred to, they they, they kind of saw all the movements of, of the planets and the stars as related to the movements of the gods. So if you saw some planets moving or some stars moving, there'd be something going on in the heavenlies. The gods would be moving in a certain way. So they see in, in, in this bright shining of Venus something represented within the way the gods had moved, right? This idea somehow that one of the gods had clearly fought for power and fought to be the brightest, fought to be the greatest god, but had fallen in comparison to the greater gods. Does that kind of make sense? Linking then this idea to the Babylonians, what is being said is, is you may think you're great. You may think you are this wonderful deity like Venus shines just before the dawn. But ultimately in the morning, the sun will eclipse it. Ultimately, God is greater. And in verse 13, it talks about this like mount of assembly on the heights of Zaphon. I'm just trying to give you a bit of language for this and these things, right? They're weird. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to level you. They're weird. And... Here, what they seem to be referring to is in Canaanite mythology, they had this particular mountain where the assembly of the gods would meet to have some chats, to play a bit of poker maybe, um, to catch up after a long period away. And, and what, what, what he's saying here is that you think you can go and sit with the assembly of the gods? 
You think you can go and sit and enjoy? You think you're equal with these gods? Of course you're not. There'll be a period where you are brought low. Our God is greater. So what's the point? People rise in power, but ultimately they will fall. We can buy into the fact that we're demigods and that somehow we can control everything and nature doesn't even stand a chance against us. But ultimately, pride always comes with a fall. The only true certainty we can hold to is that God remains the same, that our God is greater. Every leader who's once held themselves up as the greatest leader in the entire world, all it would take would be a wave in the ocean like we experienced in those stupid moments in the cliffs, and yet God is even greater than nature. So I want to ask you tonight, who, who do you put your trust in? Do you put your trust in maybe there's, there's leaders people, uh, political parties, ultimately they dictate what goes on. They're who you feel most secure in when they're in power, when they're speaking. Maybe it's systems, way of thinking. Maybe it's yourself. You're the ultimate designer of your, of your destiny. Everything you do says goes. Um, kind of, what's the Frank Sinatra thing? I did it my way. That classic line, you know, everyone else can do what they want, but you did it your way. You don't need community. You're an independent person. And therefore, you can handle everything that's thrown of you regardless of anyone else. Maybe that's who you place your trust and security in. But ultimately, from what I see here, from what I know of my limited time on earth, is that whatever rises will eventually fall. God remains the same. Our God is greater. And you know, there's an encouragement here for those of you tonight who come here. Maybe you're feeling hopeless. Maybe it's an addiction. Something that's gripped you that you feel is the ultimate power in your life. And there's no way you can possibly break free from it. Maybe there's a situation that you're working through at the moment in a relationship. Maybe there's a job you're struggling with. Whatever it is, it seems completely insurmountable. And you can completely relate to the Israelite people in their situation. Everything seems hopeless. From the moment that particular thing has happened, it seems like everything has been turned upside down. And suddenly, these powers and authorities seem to have complete control. And you're wondering, what are we going to do? Maybe you look at the news at the moment and you see the hopeless situation, North Korea. You look at Putin in, 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 in Russia. You see terrorists and ISIS and you go, do you know what? What can our God really do though? Realistically, what can God do? But they will rise and they will fall. Our God is greater. No power and authority on this earth has any control over the living God in whom we worship. And what's beautiful about this text is it has this kind of cosmic language deliberately to make it ambiguous. It is about the historical context with the Babylonians, yes, but it is about the powers and forces of evil that control this spiritual world, that we believe that Jesus doesn't, isn't only greater than the physical, but is also greater than the spiritual, that he defeated death. It's your first time here tonight. That is the base of the Christian faith. Jesus defeated death. Like Zoe, you have the opportunity to enter into a relationship with the living God. And ultimately, all powers and forces will bow at his knees because he is greater. Because this man who came to the earth, who in greatest weakness on the cross, displayed wonderful weakness almost, but yet accomplished the greatest victory this world has ever seen. And because of that, we can place our trust, we can bow at the feet of Jesus, a Jewish man who was broken, beaten, bloodied on a cross because three days later, he rose again. And therefore, we have hope. Our God is greater. Amen? Boom. Boom.
ruining a sermon with the word boom. That picture as well, by the way, how cool is that? That's the, the person on the wave. Yeah, that's just a random point of interest. All right. I did pray at the start that if it's stupid, it falls on deaf ears. So I own that prayer now. Let's pray. Father, um, <laughs> we thank you that you are greater. And we pray now for whoever's in this room and there's a sense in which that message is is challenging or or difficult to hear because there's something in their lives that is overpowering, that is all-consuming, that is hopeless, that you will show, even as, as they leave this building, that you are greater. In the smallnesses of the day, this week, Monday morning, may you bless them with a sign that you are greater. We love you, we worship you, and we praise you. In your name, amen.